0: Let's read from Acts 17. I want to read to you the account of Paul's ministry in the city of Athens. As you know, we've been working through a series on church in the city, trying to wrestle with what it means for us to be a church in the very center of an extraordinary city, and what what the meaning of that is biblically, what mentality and attitude we should have. And so it seemed right to, today to speak to you about the biblical priority of the city. And I know for some that would be immediately be a controversial idea, so I want to wrestle with that. And I'll show you, really from the Bible, that the, the, the early church uh, was focused on cities. And here's one example of ministry to an, a profoundly important city in the Greco-Roman world of the first century, the city of Athens. So we're going to read... Uh, from verse 16 of Acts 17. And I'll read fairly quickly just as it's a narrative account. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and Anastasis, the resurrection. So they thought it was like maybe a name of a God or something. They were confused, clearly. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us. For, and here he quotes their poets, in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man. And he means Jesus whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So in other words, the proof that Jesus is going to judge the world was his resurrection. That was God's attestation and confirmation of who he was. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them, So, church in the city. I, I think just to sort of frame this, what we're going to be thinking about today, the biblical priority of the city, I think a lot of people are under the impression that Christianity is predominantly a kind of rural phenomenon. So uh, it's, it's most strong outside cities, most strong in rural areas. And you can think that because what happens? You ever go traveling across the United Kingdom... Travel village to villages, you know, go and spend some time in the Cotswolds or the Yorkshire Dales or wherever you want to go and get rained on. Um, they, when you go from village to village, the most prominent building typically in, in small towns and villages is the church, right? And so you get this impression as you go around that, that Christianity is very dominant out in the countryside, whereas when you come to London, Churches used to be the dominant buildings and now they're surrounded and and overwhelmed by everything else. And a lot of them aren't churches anymore at all. They've been converted or they've been knocked down or whatever's happened to them. And then you have little upstart churches, who do they think they are, meeting in random community centers in the middle of nowhere. So one thing you can get the impression is that church is a rural phenomenon, Christianity is a rural phenomenon, not a city thing. And we also begin to associate Christianity with kind of traditional little Englander mentality, conservatism um, of, of a past generation and not the kind of, you know, not the youth movement and the kind of millennial way of thinking that, that is dominant in cities, right? So we think Christianity belongs outside cities uh, and not in them. But actually, even just factually, that's, that's a wrong impression. Even today, uh, Christianity is flourishing most in some of the major cities in our nation. Now, not in all of them, but in London's a great example of that, actually. If you want to see a place where we have the highest church attendance and also the fastest growth in, in, as, a, as a faith, it's actually in, in this city that we're in, which is amazing, isn't it? Whereas if you, if you move out into the villages and, and small towns, actually you find sometimes the very opposite trend is the case. The, vi- the building might be prominent, but the congregations very often are, are struggling and, and are small. And uh, obviously this has to do with our historical moment, what's happened with Christianity in the Western world, and there's a lot we can think about and talk through on that subject, but we're not going to go down that road today. What I'm trying to say to you is that even today, Christianity flourishes in the context of the city. And I I want you to understand that the early church, which is where we're going to focus on our minds, and particularly what happened around the time of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, the book we read from, which is... The decades just after the time of Jesus, when the church began to kind of spread out across the Roman world. The early church was basically an urban movement. And uh, so there's a historian called Roger Stark, um, Rodney Stark even, who has written a number of books about the history of Christianity. This one, The Triumph of Christianity, How the Jesus Movement Became the World's Largest Religion. So how it started with a few men and became the world's largest religion. He says this, that according to all historians in early years, nearly all Christians were urbanites. And when he talks about early years, he actually means for centuries. So for the first three centuries or so, he says that Christians made virtually no effort to reach the rural areas of the nations that they were they were reaching with the gospel, which is very interesting. Uh, instead, they tended to focus on cities, and particularly most dominant in port cities, understandably, as missionaries traveled in. They reached port, port after port around the Mediterranean. And in fact, the bigger the city, generally speaking, the more influence Christianity had and the more it grew. So small, the smaller the city, the less influence. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it's almost exactly the opposite to what you'd sort of expect or anticipate when we think about the faith. And he says, that's why almost, he says no mention is made in the book of Acts of Paul ever preaching in the countryside. Now please don't stone me. I have no problem with the countryside. I don't have have any problem with rural areas. But I want you to wrestle with this reality for a minute because I think it helps us understand why we're here. What does it mean for you? You are here. You're in London, right? And, And maybe God has a reason for that. And maybe the reason that you thought you came to London is not the reason God brought you here. And I'm hoping, and I think that already some of you, in, as we've been unfolding this idea not this last month, some of you have begun to wrestle with that and really rethink why you're here in the city, which is brilliant. It's exactly why we're doing this. Maybe God has a purpose here for you that you never even realized. And I want us to really think about this and meditate on this as we get into this. And so we're going to ask a couple of questions today. One is, why why did the early church become an urban movement? And then as a kind of rider on that, a backup question is, why is that so crucial for us? The implications are going to be pretty obvious, I think, but really wrestling with that one. Why did it become an urban movement? Why is the book of Acts so centered on cities? And why is that true even for the centuries that followed the birth of the early church. I want to give you three reasons. I want to give you three reasons. The first is this, that it was all to do with mission and not wanderlust. You heard this expression, wanderlust. I think it's quite a new word. It's like the craving to travel, the craving to see the world. And really, it's it's a fairly new phenomenon, isn't it? Because once upon a time, only... The very narrow population of the population, a very narrow percentage of the population, had the opportunity to travel at all. But now any of us can. Travel's cheap. We can go anywhere in the world. And you could think that when you're reading your your Book of Acts and you're looking at Paul's journeys, where did he get to go? He got to go to Ephesus. I've been to Ephesus, and it's extraordinary place, and you know, amazing, beautiful, um, the the ancient ruins, amazing place of. This, this Roman architecture you got to go to Ephesus you got to go to Athens you know, some of you have been privileged to go on holiday in Athens and you think well it's interesting Paul how you went to all these lovely places during your ministry and then he got to go to Ro- Rome I know he was in prison but he was in Rome right so it was- Clearly, Paul, we're questioning your motives. What was all this about? You know? Did you just enjoy being on the open seas and going from city to city, port to port? You know, and there was something attractive. There's always been something appealing and attractive about cities. It's implicit, isn't it, in what Jesus said about a city on a hill can't be hidden. Just as children's eyes are drawn to light, I think humans' hearts are drawn to go and see and visit cities and know what the dynamic is and the culture is of different cities. There's something attractional about a city, isn't there, where you see lots of people and what they produce when they're all together. So you could think, looking at Paul, that uh, maybe there was this, this drive towards just seeing the world and being sophisticated and all the rest of it. And obviously, part of the problem is that we these days, we have, we have, churches often run what we call mission weeks, which generally speaking, are little more than tourist opportunities for Christians, right? So we, we jump on airplanes, and we go to some part of the world where we think we're needed more, and um, we, we, um, we get our jabs, and we get our passports ready, and our visas ready, and we go and offload off these planes, and then we... Um, go and go and help people in some way, like maybe paint a building or something like that, and, and go and visit a church and sing some songs and do some stuff, and then we we go home and celebrate our, our great mission week. And often, I think that this amounts to little more than Christian tourism, doesn't it? And I'm not saying it's it's purposeless, and I don't think this, I don't think all mission weeks are useless. But uh, what I'm trying to say is that. The most we suffer for the gospel usually in these contexts is when we get diarrhea from eating food that we've never eaten before, right? So this is like the extent of Christian sort of understanding of what mission is these days often. And also there's just the pull, isn't there? Even today we feel it, the pull to the city such that you might think, oh, you came here with God's agenda, but really there were all kinds of things going on in our hearts that brought us to London, weren't there? And one of the proofs of that, that people aren't necessarily here for the reason that of mission is that usually as soon as it becomes inconvenient to be in London, people flee the city. They move elsewhere as soon as it becomes too difficult, too tight, too constrictive. And it, it, it puts a question mark on why we came here in the first place, doesn't it? So what I'm trying to say to you is that we have these ideas about what it looks like to travel the world and do mission, what it means to be in cities, and we're superimposing our experiences on the New Testament because when you look back at what Paul was doing in the book of Acts and the other missionaries with him, a couple of important things. One is nobody traveled for fun back then because it wasn't fun. It was was incredibly expensive, time-consuming. I've often wondered when I've read about Paul's journeys. I was like, He'd, he'd set off. It's like if I said next year I'm going to go, I'm going to go do a mission trip to um, a nation in, let's say, one of the stands, and um, it's going to take me four months to get there. I'm going to stay for two months, and then it'll take me a further four months to get back. So I'll be gone for ten months. I hope you guys are cool with that. If you continue paying my salary that week. Be- Brilliant, and uh, we'll, we'll sort things out when we get back. And obviously, for Paul, this was what he was doing. He was travelling from place to place, but a lot of his time, it seems, was seemingly wasted on these long journeys. Um, he frequently seems to get close to dying on these journeys, and then when he arrives in these places, people don't like him, generally speaking. And so, but he keeps going. So the idea that this was some kind of wanderlust is so misguided, as to be laughable. And also, and this is interesting. Cities in the ancient world were terrible places. I was reading this, this book, uh, Rodney Stark's book, was describing what cities were like. And this is really going to disillusion any idea of the romantic missionary life. They were very dense. The streets generally were about nine and a half feet wide, which is like if I lay down and then put Seth on my head, That would be roughly how wide the the city streets are. And in those streets, you'd have all people moving around with their flocks of animals, and you you struggle to get around anywhere. The buildings were frequently collapsing because they were badly built. And in fact, as well, because it was cheaper to live on, on the upper floors because there were no lifts and elevators, so the wealthy wanted to live on the ground floor where it was a little bit more convenient... What happened was the poor all ended up living upstairs and then they would subdivide the space into smaller and smaller areas for you to live until you ended up with lots of too many people upstairs and the whole building would just collapse. So people lived in fear of being squashed by their neighbors. There was one, in Rome, in the city of Rome, there was one privately owned home for every 26 apartments. And the word apartment is a very generous term because they were more like cubicles. So you lived in this tiny cubicle. In that cubicle, you didn't have any running water. So if you, if you wanted water, you had to go and fetch it from a local well or whatever and bring it home, which meant that you didn't really have enough water for washing. You could go to the public bath, but you didn't have enough to, to wash at home. You didn't have enough to mop your own house. And you didn't have enough, really, to do any laundry. So it was an effort to do any of that kind of cleaning stuff. You just had enough to, to drink. And in that same home, you didn't have, the only way you could heat the home in winter and the only way you could cook was over an open brazier, an open fire, and there were no chimneys. So the room became filled with smoke, which meant you always had to have the windows open even in the winter, and you might have a curtain flapping in front, but there were constant drafts and people were breathing in smoke the whole time. And there was a constant fire hazard as well because when you have open fire in people's little homes and they're all packed together, someone's going to make a mistake someday, aren't they? And set the whole thing ablaze and then the fire spreads rapidly. So people lived in fear of fire. And it gets worse. There were no toilets. So if you needed the loo, you had to go down to the public latrine somewhere nearby. I've actually seen the one that's in Ephesus, which is like, it's like a room where you sit on a bench and you all can have a chat to each other around the room because there's no cubicle. So you just like have, a, have a chat and there's like a stream that runs underneath and washes all the way. But if you needed the loo in the middle of the night, what did you do? You, you had to use a chamber pot in your, in your little cubicle. And then when you needed to empty it, you're not going to go down to the local whatever you dump the stuff. You're going to tip it out the window because it's more convenient. And often you know, they write about the danger of being showered on as you walked down the streets by people's waste and the stink of the sewage that just ran down the streets. And I'm trying to paint for you the worst picture deliberately, guys, because I want you to really just wrestle with what this meant for Paul. The city was very transient, because, and, and as a result, there were no social kind of accountability, and so crime was rife. People didn't want to go out at night time. To go out at night was to very much to risk your life. And uh, it was worse than elephant and castle. So there was disease as well. Lots and lots of disease. So they've examined the fecal matter uh, in in excavations around Jerusalem from the first century. And they found that nearly everybody had tapeworm or whipworm or both. Which meant that you constantly lived with pain and, and you were always a little bit, (laughs) well. <laughs> so not life-threatening, but just bad enough that you might be malnourished and skinny and all the rest of it. And, and, and then you think, well, what, what's appealing about that? Now, here's Paul. Of course you get to go and see, you know, the beautiful architecture in Athens, but that wears off pretty quickly when you smell Athens and when you catch some, get, contract some tapeworm and when you, you know, you're staying in the hovel, it, it wears off quickly, doesn't it, the appeal? And I stress all this because I think that you can only make sense of the urban priority, the, the, the absolute passion to get into the cities that Paul and his, his, his fellow missionaries had and felt, when you understand that they had enough motive to do it. They felt the weight of Christ's demand upon them. Go into all the world and preach the gospel and make disciples of all nations. There's no other reason to leave your comfortable village in the countryside and go and see all these big cities unless you feel compelled by the Holy Spirit and by what Christ has told you. Or in Acts 1.8 when Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so the logic was we are meant to go. We cannot stay still. And our job is to make this message known in radiating circles of knowledge all around the earth. And Paul himself felt the strong sense of the burden of his own personal call. Do you remember how Jesus said to Ananias on the day that, that Paul uh, kind of came, became a Christian? he said about Paul that he is my chosen instrument to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So there was this compelling sense of purpose that drove them out, 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 and never into a retreating, comfortable life. And... Along with that sense of Christ's demand was another factor here that they felt welling up from their spirit a sense of compassion for the people. I wonder what Paul's reaction would be if he walked through London today, what he would think looking at our city. What would would stir his spirit? I think we kind of grow a bit dull to it, don't we? You see how when he arrived in Athens, what does it say about him? It said at the beginning of this passage, That he, in verse 16, when he was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. Of course, his knowledge that God is is one, that Jesus is the Lord of all the earth, meant that he felt his worldview colliding with the idolatry he saw in Athens. And it gave birth to passion to tell people about Jesus. You see that same compassion there at the end of the, this, his sermon when he says to them, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. Paul wasn't there because it was a nice life. He wasn't there because it was comfortable. He wasn't there because it provided him with, with all the interesting things that he needed for an intellect as great as his. He was there because he was conscious that Jesus is coming back and the cities need to know. The people must know about Jesus. I know some of you aren't Christians. And I want to say to you that it's so important that you understand that the opportunity you have, the privilege actually that you have of being able to have a, give Christianity a hearing and understand the claims of Jesus and what it means for your life, that privilege has been hard won by the sacrifices of men like Paul and generations that came after them who said, who planted a flag in the cities of Europe and said we're going to make Christianity known even if we're persecuted, mocked, and rejected. And you must never take that for granted. When people suffer for something, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're right, but you should at least give them a hearing. If they were willing to lay their own lives down for the sake of you hearing this, why not engage with it more sincerely and more seriously? Now you're here, which is one thing. But I want to encourage you to understand what a privilege it is to know this stuff. Just this week I was reading uh, an article that was saying that in Nepal, now we're part of a movement of churches called Advance, and there's 35 churches in Nepal who are part of this movement. And a lot of them are very new churches, because where the pastors go and preach the gospel, a new church starts, and then they, they, people just want to know Jesus. It's like a, it, there's something extraordinary happening in that country. But even just this week, the government made it illegal both to evangelize, in other words, share your faith to a, someone who's not a Christian, and to, to convert to Christianity. Now, this has been true in Nepal in, in the past, but over the recent decade or so, there was more freedom, and it's troubling, isn't it? And you think, wow, we live in the most privileged context in the world where, sure, I might suffer some social rejection, but that's about the limit, isn't it? For those of you who are Christians, I think you need to constantly reassess what suffering for the gospel means. I think we have a tendency to feel sorry for ourselves, don't we, sometimes, when we experience the hardships of, of life, and particularly the hardships of life in a city like London, the challenges that we face, and I'm wanting you to very much fix it in your minds what an extraordinary privilege it is to be here. And let's rid ourselves of any sense of entitlement, that we must own a home, that we must be able to eat out at all the nice restaurants where other people eat. And all of that stuff, we need to rid ourselves and understand, no, it's not about wanderlust. Whatever reason you came to to London for, really, no, it's about mission. We're here for the city. We're here for our friends and neighbors. We're here for our colleagues. We're here to make Jesus known. We're here to build a church here that will be significant in in spreading the knowledge of Christ in this city. Do you agree with me? Can I get an amen? (laughs) Mission not wanderlust. Here's the second thing. It was about wisdom and not neglect. You see... I, I think that a focus on cities is sometimes seen as neglectful of uh, other people, in other words, the people who are not in them. And uh, people say also, it's, it's elitism. Why are, why are you Christians only interested in, in cities? Isn't that a kind of form of elitism that we only care for the urban types? And isn't it lacking compassion that, that the gospels meant to go everywhere? And doesn't Jesus himself show us a ministry in which he would spend most of his time outside of the cities in the, in the rural areas and often prioritizing the individual, the broken, needy, and lonely person who he found and gave compassion to and ministered to in his, his, own, his own mission to the world. So when we look at the model of Jesus and when we think about God's heart for the world, we're wrong, is the argument, to focus on the importance of cities in modern 21st century mission. And I think, I, I just want to say, I, I think that is valid that we wrestle with that. I do not in any way want to dismiss those concerns. And as I've said to you in previous weeks, I've got friends who minister in s- small, small towns. You know, a square mile of London contains many hundreds of thousands of people. And some of the, my friends live in places where, you know, they have a matter of a few thousand people. And they're planting churches and doing important things. And I don't want to belittle these concerns I don't at all. But I want you to understand, when we think about the ministry of Jesus, you have to understand that, things, that there was a pivotal moment that during his earthly ministry, he spent a lot of his time trying to keep his identity under wraps. You see it, don't you? He heals people, but then he goes and tells them, don't tell anyone. They can't help it, of course. But he says he's concerned that, that people don't build up this idea of him uh, that, that isn't accurate of him as being a kind of savior from the Romans in the way that they envisaged. And he, he hadn't fulfilled his work. He knew he had to die. He knew he had to be raised from the dead. And then following that, he had to be ascended to the Father's right hand and given the seat of all authority from which he would then conduct his mission to the world. And so his ministry prior to all of that doesn't always give us a pattern of what mission looks like today because once those pivotal moments had taken place once things had tipped and jesus had then said to his disciples now go into all the world jesus said of himself i've come to the lost sheep of israel in other words my mission is is has quite a small focus right now but once i've died for the world then it goes out and suddenly the focus shifted from being an inward-looking movement that was fairly small in its scope to becoming a global movement with an urgency to get the message out. And everything changed at that point. And I think, what I'm trying to say to you is, I think that the reason Paul and the early Christians prioritized a city was because it made sense in the light of the demand of Christ. It made sense for a few reasons I want to give you, and they're all relevant to us today in London. Firstly, because of the kinds of people that you meet in cities. So in general, city people are more open to new ideas and to change. In Athens, where we read from at the beginning, did you notice how when Paul starts preaching, and he's in the synagogue, and he's in the marketplace, and he's talking about Jesus... People start to pick up on it and, and they're, they're, some of them are a bit like, what, what are you talking about? He seems to be preaching foreign divinities. And others are like, "This they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we know that this new teaching that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know what these things mean. Now this is very typical of city people. They hear about something new and they, they're on board with that. They want to know about that. Even when it's very mundane day-to-day things of life, new technologies, new food, new restaurants, all the rest of it. But even new ideas, new worldviews, they want to wrestle with these things. And it's very much a typical thing of cities. It says even in the next verse, verse 21, it says that the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. Luke's almost a little bit disparaging of them because he's like, these guys are useless. All they do is sit around and talk all day. But there's a sense in which that was exactly why they were ripe for the ideas. The gospel was presenting something extraordinary, radical, and revolutionary, and you need to go to people who will listen. They even had a space in the city designed for discussion, the Areopagus. And when a lot of people were having their siesta mid-afternoon, that was when some of them, would forego sleep and sit instead in the Areopagus and just talk about the deeper things of life. And cities are geared up in this way. What do we have in cities? We usually have, we have major universities. Nearly all of them are in, in the major cities, aren't they? In our country, at least. Where ideas are thrown up and discussed and, and, and wrestled with. You have newspapers, the most important newspapers. I come from Winchester, which is a small, small city in the, in the south of England, Has anyone here ever read the Winchester Echo? (laughs) No, you haven't. I didn't see a single hand. Because it's not... Okay, there's one hand. (laughs) My brother's also from Winchester, so that doesn't count. (laughs) You don't read it because, generally speaking, the Winchester Echo is not known for engaging with with world issues at the same level as The Guardian or The Telegraph or The Times, The Economist, The Financial Times, or any of these papers. And you think... This is what cities are about. They, they are interested in, in these ideas. And it's not to say that people in outside cities are never interested or are less able. It's none of those things. It's just something in the culture of a city. And the kinds of people in cities you find in cities are people who are going to engage with these ideas. Maybe that's true of you as a, someone who's not a Christian. Maybe you've come to a city and part of your reason to being in London is to explore something of what it means to be alive. Like what is life about? And you will meet all kinds of opinions and personalities in a city like this. One of the unique opportunities you have as well is to come and engage with people at the same life stage as you, as in this room, and ask them, and engage with them, and discuss with them, and discover for yourself. So there's one thing, the kinds of people in cities. Here's another. The cultural supremacy of cities so as Paul went through the ancient world, what you read in the book of Acts is an account of him going to Athens, and then Corinth, and then Ephesus, and then Rome. Now, why? Why, why these cities? Reading Timothy Keller on this, he said Athens was the intellectual center of the, of the Greco-Roman world. And you can sort of feel that, can't you, when you read this story? The kinds of people there and the things they want to think about. Corinth, of course, Athens was where some of the great philosophers had come from centuries earlier, right? It was in their culture, it was in the way they it was in the water almost. Corinth was a commercial centre of the of the world. Big business, lots of money. Ephesus was a religious centre. So when you went to Ephesus, there was a temple to Diana, the many breasted goddess. And they would carve little statues of God, of Diana with, I don't know, she's got like a hundred boobs on her chest. It's really weird. And they would carve these things and give them out to, then they would sell them to the surrounding regions. So lots of people were sort of, the, the, the infiltri- this religion was infiltrating the surrounding culture. The worship of Diana. It was a, a very influential city for these, these particular idolatries. And then there was Rome. A... A military and political center. Of course, no one needs... I don't need to labor the point how important Rome was. And you ask yourself the question, was it accidental that Paul went to all these places? John Stott said, it seems to have been Paul's deliberate policy to move purposefully from one strategic center to the next. In fact... Jesus himself gives Paul a strong directive on this point. In Acts 23, let's see if I can find this. It says, the following night the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you've testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, this is while Paul is under arrest, he says, so you must testify also in Rome. And you ask yourself the question, Why is Jesus interested in Paul preaching in Jerusalem and then in Rome? Of all the places on the face of the earth, why does he specify Rome? If it was today that Jesus was directing a missionary like this, like Paul, what city would he name? Maybe London. You ask, why was Paul concerned then to preach the gospel in places like Athens, like we read of in Acts 17, and places like Ephesus and Corinth and Rome? Why was it so important that he go to the heart of these big cities and declare Jesus? And I think one of the answers is because the gospel speaks to all of life. It speaks to the intellectual aspect of life. It speaks to the commercial aspect of life, like in Corinth, to the religious aspect of life, and to the power aspect, the military and political aspects of life. The gospel speaks to all of these things. It changes all of these things. So for for the gospel to go out and into all the world and to disciple all nations, to bring all nations into line with the teaching of Jesus Christ, you cannot ignore the cities and institutions of of, of the world. So why he goes to Athens, and he finds people, like the, it says in verse 18, the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These are dominant philosophies at the time, right? It affected tens of thousands, if not millions of people. And part of the heartland of these philosophies was in places like Athens. So when Paul goes to Athens and starts engaging with Epicurean and Stoic philosophers on their understanding of the world he's not just speaking to your random man in the street about Stoicism or Epicureanism. He's speaking with the men who are shaping these these ideas and promulgating them into the world. He's speaking with thought leaders. He's engaging with influential people. And as he does so, he quotes their own poetry because some of what they believe is true and he wants to say, yeah, it's in line with the teaching of, of Christianity. And some of it he's going to push against and say, no, you've, you've misunderstood this because he wants to spread the teaching of Jesus into every aspect of life. Does this make sense to you? The gospel speaks to all of life. So for Christians to influence business, they have to speak to the heart of, of where the money is made. For Christians to influence the arts, they have to be where the leading artists are. For Christians to speak to the intellectuals, they have to be present in the universities. I think it's very easy to extrapolate out from what Paul is doing in focusing on these major cities to our own context and our, the own significance of what we are here for in London. And of course, that's not to say that all of us are going to be engaging with people on that level. Of course not. And it's not to belittle the one-to-one stuff like we see in Jesus' own ministry of just the broken and the needy and, and the downcast in any way. But neither must we be inverted in the way we think about these things and think the gospel is only for the underdog and not think that the gospel is meant to change the whole of society, which it is. And it gives a new angle on the importance of what you do in your day-to-day, doesn't it? When you think that God might cause you to be an influencer, salting that part of the city and of life that you are involved in. And therefore, I think what's happening is that Paul is going to these places which some have described as being upstream culturally. I think it's a helpful way of picturing it. Upstream. Because when you affect what's going on up there, it trickles down into the rest of life. There are people who are culture consumers and people who are culture creators. And Paul went right to the culture creators because he felt that the gospel held its own in that context. This is a challenge for us, isn't it? For those of us who are Christians, because we think, well, am I equipped? Am I equipped to, to share the implications of my faith in the spheres in which I move? Or which I hope to move one day? Even if you, you have humble ambitions, there's still ways in which the gospel has to shape what you're doing. Are you equipped? Are you, like Peter said, are you ready to give an answer for those who ask you? I think there is a mandate on every Christian to be a learner and to understand your worldview, to understand the implications of what it means to believe in the one God and how it affects every aspect of life. If you're not a Christian, the challenge here is, you know, you maybe you see different parts of your life as being kind of little separated siloed spheres that you have your work, that you have your social life, and that you have your spirituality, which you're interested in, because that's why you came here, or why you're exploring. But you don't necessarily see the connections between all these things. What it means to become a Christian is to suddenly realize how Jesus is Lord over everything, and all of it makes sense within his, his created purpose for you. The kinds of people, the cultural supremacy... And here's another reason. Because of the inflow and the outflow of cities. Cities are hubs from which you can reach surrounding regions. Back in the beginning of the book of Acts, when the gospel is only known by 120 people praying in an upper room, the first thing that happens is God gives them the gift of tongues and they start praying out in different languages. Do you remember this? On the day of Pentecost. And it's interesting that as they pray out in different languages it tells us there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven and they start hearing them preaching the ways in the, about God in their own languages so there were guys who were speaking greek and guys who were speaking arabic and guys who were speaking whatever turkish was at the time i don't think there was such a thing and there were all different languages in the mix in jerusalem And the first thing God does on the day of Pentecost when he pours his spirit out is make the gospel international by putting the message in different languages. But here's the crucial thing. They didn't have to go anywhere in order to do it. All of these people were in Jerusalem. Isn't that interesting? In Athens... We read how when Paul starts preaching in the Areopagus, it says there were Athenians and foreigners who lived there and spend all their day doing nothing except telling or hearing something new. What I'm trying to show you is that one of the ways you reach the nations with the gospel is by preaching the gospel in cities. I'd love to know how many languages are in this room. In the next chapters, and Paul starts preaching in Ephesus and there's this amazing moment in, in, in Acts 19 where it says he'd been speaking for months and then it says he continued in Acts 19 verse 10. This continued for two years. He spent two years in Ephesus, which is a long time for Paul to spend anywhere. And you know, Ephesus was at such a juncture geographically where all the roads went through Ephesus. So if anyone wanted to travel around the empire, by road, they all went through Ephesus. And Ephesus was massively influential for the whole region. It says Paul spent two years there. Why? It says he continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So Paul does nothing but sit still and preach the gospel, and the word starts to get out. Isn't that phenomenal? He doesn't have to go from town to town to town to town in what is now Turkey today. He just has to sit still and the city is a thoroughfare of ideas and of people and the gospel starts to spread out. It starts to influence. It starts to transform the whole region. This is often Paul's way. He felt that he had exhausted his opportunities in a region even though he'd only been to one town. Because he'd met enough people from this village. Oh, you're from there, are you? Let me tell you about Jesus. Then they come to hear about Jesus. They go home and tell the family about Jesus. And then there's a church that starts in that town. It's amazing, isn't it? Let me bring you to the last thing. It was about mission, not wanderlust. It was wisdom, not neglect. The other reason they focused on cities in this way was because of optimism and not defeat. And I want to deal with this just very rapidly. Hope is a massive driver of human endeavor. People only do anything significant in their life if they have a sense of hope that what they do will matter and will count. And yet, when you read the book of Acts, there are moments when the task seems impossible and overwhelming that you cannot see any reason why they had any hope to change the world. Right at the very start, 120 people in a room with a task to tell the whole world about Jesus. And you think, we feel a little bit overwhelmed by the city we're in, don't we, when we consider our insignificance. Well, let's put it in perspective here, of what, Paul, or what the original apostles felt when they were in that room praying together. Even as they went from city to city and preached the gospel, sometimes the results were meager. You know, it said at the end of the chapter we read that as Paul preached in the Areopagus every day and just, it said a a few people. It says some men joined him and believed. It's not very impressive, is it? They met many dead ends on their missions. Many times when people just said, no, we want nothing to do with this. And yet... They keep hoping, even though often they saw so little. And I want you to ask the question, why? And I think the answer is is twofold. One is because they believed in the potency of the message that they were preaching. That if we keep preaching the gospel, it does and will change lives. The message that Jesus has died on the cross for your sins that you might know God intimately without any sense of guilt or condemnation and that ultimately he will receive you into his eternal dwellings for all eternity. If you want that, it is yours. What an incredible message it is. But it wasn't just the message that they had confidence in. They also had confidence in what you can call the vehicle or the strategy that God had intended to use to reach the whole world. What do I mean by the vehicle? I mean the local church. The local church. Jesus was invested in his church. He'd made promises like this one in Matthew 13. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's larger then all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. I think that the early Christians had the sensation that what they were doing was planting mustard seeds wherever they went. When Paul's writing to one of his churches that he started in the city of Corinth, which we mentioned earlier, he talks about what happened there. And he says, I planted mustard seed. Apollos, his friend, watered. So he came along and just helped encourage that church. But he says, but God gave the growth. What I'm trying to help you friends to see is this. That yes, we're absolutely committed to the gospel as the only hope of the world. And yes, we're absolutely committed to the city We feel passionately that we're meant to be in London at this time. But in view of the enormity of the task, when you think, what does it mean to impact a city when you are relatively few? We're also committed to planting mustard seeds, to the calling, the vision to start churches. As I said to you in an earlier message I believe that when we when we started grace we the way the language we used was that we were born pregnant we didn't want to just start a new church we wanted to start a new church that would start churches because I'm confident of God's means of reaching the city I'm confident that as we plant seeds you know a new church here a new church there we water them God's going to bring the growth. And soon enough, what is just a mustard seed becomes the biggest tree in all the garden. And I take courage from the fact that even in the New Testament, we're starting to see it. The shoots grow as the churches are getting, gaining momentum. And the history books tell the rest of the story, don't they? How did this movement become the dominant movement in the world? Because people had hope. They felt that what they were doing mattered, and they wanted to plant these seeds, even when they saw very little. And I'm, late, I'm The whole purpose of this series, friends, has been to call you and to say to you what we're doing matters in the kingdom of God. And I don't. We're not interested in just gathering more attenders. We want people who are invested in the church. We want people who understand that what we're doing here matters for eternity. And we want to be equipped and tooled up to plant new churches. And for each one of us that's going to look differently, how we are called to invest and what it means to be on mission with Jesus here. It, comes to, it covers the full spectrum of what your life is about. some of you it's going to be absolutely a, a passion, a vision to be a church planter. And we want to get behind that and, and help you and help you grow and, and send you out. Others of you say, oh, I'm going I'm to give diligently. Because as we give and sow into this, the church is going to be able to do more. And Some of you are going to be diligent in prayer. Hopefully all of us. It was so precious Friday night to see so many of you out for our prayer gathering. It was phenomenal time. I just really felt God's presence was with us. And it was a really precious time, wasn't it? I want to pray. Time has gone. But I want us to just respond in prayer. And I think it would be good for us to take communion in our seats. All of what we've been saying these past few weeks has Been something of a a re envisioning, hasn't it? But we want to respond to Jesus rightly and and wrestle with our calling, don't we? And, And our sense of purpose. And as I hand out the bread and the wine, these great symbols of what Jesus has done for us, as we sing of his love for us. I want us to have space to just have dealings with God. Maybe to ask the question Lord, what do you want from me? What do you want me to do? Maybe it's to reassess your heart's desires and attitudes. God's rewiring some of you as you think about your purpose here in London. You thought you came for one reason. But Jesus had a different reason altogether. And He wants you to be content and happy and full of faith for what He's going to do through you. Maybe you just want to sit there and intercede and pray. God, equip us, God, change this city. God, use us. Maybe you need to repent of your kind of self-centeredness, really, where you know that you haven't been about the mission of Jesus. Or you haven't been engaged with the church that he loves, his bride, in the way that he wants you to be. In terms of what we're speaking about in this series, I think this is a very pivotal message because the things we're going to be speaking about in the weeks to come won't make any sense unless you have settled it in your heart that Jesus cares for this city. And he wants you heart and soul engaged with the work. And so I'm calling you as we take the bread and drink the wine to engage with God To allow yourself a moment to talk to him about your desires, about your hopes, about your struggles. And ask him to give you his compassion, his vision. To understand his purpose, that it would override your purpose and be the controlling thing that guides your life.